This is I Was There, gigs that changed the world. When I was 15, every gig was as good as I hoped. I think after about half a dozen, I suddenly realised this isn't as good as the wall. I mean, our seats were terrible, but it was the sheer spectacle of it. I always was very proud in seeing the aisles cleared whenever we did a show because no one moved. Everyone was mesmerized. The music driving these visuals always kept people in their seats. I won't hear a word said against it. As a, as a 15 year old, none of us came out of Earl's Court in any way disappointed. I think I probably wanted to go and see it again, but that would have meant another £1.50. So I don't know if the paper round would have stretched to that. Episode 9 Pink Floyd's The Wall Tour, 1980 81. My name is Jason Sawford. I'm the keyboard player and a founding member of the Australian Pink Floyd Show which we've been doing since 1988. The guy who founded it, Lee Smith, he was a massive, massive Pink Floyd fan. He actually wanted to assemble this Pink Floyd tribute band. And I I just answered an advertisement in a music shop and I went along with my keyboard. And it was just a bunch of guys who liked Pink Floyd and wanted to play it just for a bit of fun around the pubs around Adelaide. And it was just a small thing at first, but uh, here I am, you know, 31 years later, still doing it. It just seemed to take a life of its own. My name's Mark Blake, and I'm an author of the book Pigs Might Fly, The Inside Story of Pink Floyd. Well, I saw the original wall shows at Earl's Court in London, where it would have been 1980 because I was 15. I'd been to a couple of rock shows before, but obviously this was something completely different. You know, I was a Pink Floyd fan. I'd heard Animals, Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, and The Wall had just come out. And it was a big talking point among my sort of group of friends, and a few of us decided to go to the show. I think the tickets were £1.50 and we were sitting up in the gods somewhere, but it was quite unlike any show I've seen before or since. I'm Mark Brickman and I was the lighting designer for Pink Floyd The Wall, 1979 and onward. At the time I was working with Bruce Springsteen, I had started with him in the bars in 1970 two in Philadelphia, New Jersey. That's where I hail from. And Roger Waters and Alan Parker, I later learned, had gone to a Springsteen show somewhere about a month before, two months before, and they saw the type of work I was doing, which was really theatrical-based. So when they got to the rehearsals at the sports arena, I guess they realized they were not really hitting the mark in terms of lighting, cueing, being dramatic. And so they remembered me and I got this call in the middle of the afternoon the day before they opened, which I thought was a joke. You know, who would call the day before? It was, it was a little bizarre. I came in in the afternoon, I think it was around three o'clock in the afternoon, and there was about 200 people working on it. You could see the pedal was to the metal and it was just complete chaos going on. And they gave me a tour, it was Roger and Gerald Scarf walked me around and showed me all the different elements that were involved. And then they said, would you mind coming back in the evening for dress rehearsal? And I said, no, not at all. So I returned in the early evening. I remember Steve O'Rourke, the manager, said to me, oh, we didn't think you were going to come back. (laughs) We thought we scared you. So I sat down and I watched the rehearsal. And after the rehearsal, I went off to Roger's caravan 
and he asked me what I thought, and I immediately gave him one example, which always stuck in my mind. That they had these uh, very unique, what I would call cherry pickers, hydraulic lifts. And I said to him, at the beginning of another brick in the wall, you have that helicopter sound. I would suggest that you leave the cherry pickers down on the ground. Don't reveal them until that beginning of that song, which was probably about 15 minutes in, something like that. And I said, then turn off all the lights and allow the sound effect to drive the entrance of these spotlights. Well, that was exactly what he wanted to hear. No one had actually came up with, you know, marrying the visual with the audio in the moment. My job in that less than 24 hours away was to turn lights off. In other words, they had lights flashing from the time the downbeat started all the way through the end, really pretty much nonstop because no one was thinking about it as a theatrical presentation. They were thinking about it as a rock and roll spectacle. So everything needs to be on, flashing, all involved, where darkness actually allows you being able to show drama, that was really what was needed. And what happens is the audience gets to use their imagination. It's a very novel idea. I reshaped the whole show to the chagrin of probably some of the members that had been working on it for a couple of years. And I'm not sure if it was rescued, except I think they were trying to do something so different at that time in 79 that most people didn't understand exactly what they were doing and they got caught up like you do when you're experimenting when you're really breaking the boundaries so i was able to assist them in getting to their dream the music is the most important thing we could still do our show just playing the music and people would like it but, I mean, Pink Floyd is known for their visual aspects of the show, and that's something that, as we progressed, we added more to. It's trying to get the music right, the sound right, the actual visual sight, you know, the lights and the whole production to make it look as well as sound like a Pink Floyd show. One of the things you've got to remember with the original Pink Floyd is it was never a band with a strong visual image. There's no Mick Jagger or Robert Plant in the band sort of swanning across the stage. They had to create more exciting things on stage. I mean, it looked exactly like the audience, and it was a running joke. They could have wandered among the crowd. It was just four guys with long hair parted down the middle wearing jeans and T-shirts. So the visual side of it was, I think, necessary, but also complemented the music. It complemented the lyrics. It complemented the themes and the ideas. Pink Floyd are famous for their live shows. I mean, you know, their spectacles. And it's that combination of not only the, the, the great music, but the combination of light and sound that makes it very emotional and memorable. I think it would be the same without the spectacle. I think a lot of this did come from Roger Waters. He was the guy who, from the mid-70s onwards, was pushing for something more visual. The idea that you created a piece of musical theatre, whether that was the inflatable pig flying over the wall, planes crashing into things all of that was part of it. it all fitted into the music and the idea and the concept it was always about something that complemented the music we did the best of the wall tour we did, actually did a wall tour where we did the whole thing i mean it was a challenge how do you do something like the wall 
with the facilities that we had. And I think, you know, we relied a lot on projections and projecting a wall onto a screen and, and using some of the imagery that was used in the wall or, you know, having something that evoked the imagery of the wall. So it was trying to recreate that sort of wall look. When we talk about the concept, the album had been completed, the audio and the actual narrative, the story. It was now making it happen live. I think that that was the big challenge. The situation within Pink Floyd at that time was that prior to the wall, they'd started playing huge stadiums in America. And obviously those audiences and those venues are not tailor-made for their kind of music, which had a lot of quiet subtlety about it. And this rankled with Roger Waters. He was absolutely furious about it and was sort of started berating the audience at some dates, telling them to be quiet and listen to his message, which of course didn't necessarily go down very well. So he had the idea of, I'm going to build a wall between the audience and the band. And that sort of developed into the concept of the wall, which of course is the idea of a sort of a metaphorical wall. Well, I think it's very personal to him. There's some personal experiences in his life that he's put into it. And, you know, there's themes of war and alienation and uh, a lot of his other stuff. He talks about these divisions in society. And I think he sort of hints at that or expresses that in the music. He created a character called Pink, which was loosely based on his own experiences and also the experiences of Sid Barrett, who'd been the singer in Pink Floyd, who, who retired from the band with mental health issues years earlier. And he fed all that into this story, you know, an overbearing mother, an absent father who'd been killed in the war, which is something from Roger Waters' own life. And so it goes on. He becomes rich and successful and then becomes completely disenfranchised, starts to imagine himself as a sort of fascist dictator and so on and so forth. I remember when we did it, it was actually quite emotionally exhausting. We did something like a hundred times. And when we came to the end of it, I was kind of relieved because it's such an intense piece that it was nice to come to the end of it, but it was a, you know, an emotional piece, yes. Well, this show was unlike anything we'd done before because obviously they were building a wall between the audience and the band. They were constructing a wall as the show went along, which was completely unheard of. And we couldn't believe that anyone would do that. It really was an opera, it was rock opera at the largest scale anyone ever attempted. But I think the theme is universal. It's autobiographical for Roger. And I think that as you see the piece, you know, no one attempted anything like that. I mean, the idea of building a wall in front of the band and knocking it down and, and showing films on that wall, it really was large scale opera, you know, art installation. So at the time, there was such a lot of drama about the show. It was also very confusing as well. You felt sort of slightly disorientated because when they came on stage, it wasn't the real Pink Floyd playing. They actually had what was called a surrogate band. So it was other musicians wearing masks with their faces on, playing sort of the opening number of The Wall. And that sort of threw you because then suddenly the real Pink Floyd sort of appeared behind them. So right from the get-go, you put the audience on edge. It certainly put me on edge as a teenager because it was unlike going to see ACDC, you know, a few weeks earlier. This was something completely different. So I think that's what stayed in my mind. Plus the sheer drama, the spectacle of it, this giant sort of edifice being constructed as the show went on. It's like watching a piece of theatre. It really was. I think... It was the theatre and the drama of it. That's what stayed with me. When 
when I think of the wall, obviously there's two parts to this. There's the music, there's the record itself, but it is utterly, completely tied in with Gerald Scarf's imagery. It was a masterpiece. His visuals were absolutely, as he is, just genius. He had a very surreal, twisted look to his imagery, the way images would change into one another. And I think there are moments that are quite disturbing in the wall. And I think his imagery reflects that sense of anxiety or alienation and issues of war and suffering. And it just managed to capture that mood of the music very well. going to a record shop and buying an LP that was literally just a white and black brick wall on the cover. But that in itself was unusual. When you opened it up inside, you saw these sort of grotesque characters, the schoolmaster, the mother, Pink, and so on. It was completely unlike any Pink Floyd album before. It was very stark. It was very arresting. It was quite grotesque. And when you saw that then reproduced on the stage show, it was even more impressive. No one ever had experienced live animation on such a scale. Remember, the wall was, I think, 45 feet high by at least 110 or 120 feet wide. We had three 35-millimeter projectors out front in the audience. They had did some adjustments on the projectors and turned them into 70 mil. So I think the image actually was somewhere around 60 feet wide by 45 feet high. So it was like the first IMAX screen. So, yeah, it was just mind-blowing mind-blowing so for me the two go hand in hand the wall would not have worked without those visuals as good as the music is the show itself was utterly dependent on what Gerald Scarf created there are some classic songs in there you know things like Hey You and obviously things like Brick in the Wall famous and comfortably numb I mean when David Gilmore got to the top of the wall and comfortably numb He was standing on a man lift that was very shaky and his guitar technician, Phil Taylor, used to lay down on the man lift holding his ankles because it was not stable and it actually swayed. That was the point at which the guitarist, David Gilmore, appeared on a sort of hydraulic platform hidden behind the wall. He basically appears on the top of the wall, you know, with roadies underneath frantically sort of holding him in place and of course sings shares the lead vocals with Roger Waters, plays those two amazing guitar solos. And one of those cherry picker spotlights would come up behind David, and that was the really famous silhouette shot, you know, where he silhouetted at the top of the wall playing the solo of Comfortably Numb. If you were in the audience seeing that, it was like a god had arrived from the heavens and was playing that guitar. It was just amazing. And of course, at the time, you didn't know it was coming. So suddenly there's this spotlight and Gilmore's appeared on the top of the wall. So that was very exciting. It was those moments, they're really simple moments in terms of one light, one man playing incredible solo. That kind of staging and those kind of ideas had never been achieved before. And of course, that's, you know, I think certainly the best song on the record, certainly my favorite song on the record. We did, I think, five or six shows here in L.A. I went on to Nassau. We then went to Dortmund, Germany, went to London to shoot it for the actual film with Alan Parker. All in all, by the time we got to the filming in London, I had really redesigned the whole show in terms of the lighting. 
and integrated myself into the Pink Floyd creative team. You know, I went on to work with Pink Floyd. I still currently have a relationship with everyone. And I continued that. I've been involved with Roger and David over the years. It's always been quite an honor to work for all of them. I mean, they're really the most creative band I've ever experienced. I think everyone that I spoke to acknowledged that it was an amazingly ambitious piece of work. Everybody had nothing but good things to say about the ambition of it, about the quality of the music. There was huge respect for that. I think the only thing that possibly cast a shadow over it for some was the fact that Pink Floyd were really breaking up by that time. They'd already sort of fired their keyboard player, Rick Wright, although he was retained to do the tour on wages. And there was, I think, a pretty poor atmosphere backstage some of the time. There's a story about them at Earl's Court. They all had individual Winnebago's parked backstage, four Winnebago's parked facing away from each other. Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, being that creative, there could be a lot of tension at times because anything, any endeavor always has some sort of tension, but it always is a very rewarding and fulfilling experience whenever I work with them over the years. But again, in great Pink Floyd fashion, they're able to come together and go and perform this amazing music and compliment each other and then walk off stage again and not want to say a word. The wall is something that is Roger Waters' baby, so he was always going to stage a production of that again. I think it was inevitably done it at the Berlin Wall. He'd done a variation on this with special guests. But when he came on and did it again in, sort of, I think it was 2011, 12. Well, we started in 2009. My very good friend, Mark Fisher, he and I and Roger began exploring the possibility of bringing it back in 2009 when Roger was satisfied that we could reproduce what we had done in 79, but bring it into the modern age with technology, then he pulled the trigger and obviously the rest is history. The message hadn't aged. I think that's one of the things that struck me and Roger Waters had adapted it very well for the modern age. And of course the technology had moved on. So the show was just astonishing, spellbinding. It, it really was Hollywood blockbuster level. I have seen The Wall perform with Roger Waters more recently. Fabulous. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, they're kind of spectacular and very, very powerful. You know, the whole music, which is a very powerful music. And then, of course, you've got this visual, this thing going on with all the, the inflatables and the lights and the screen and everything. You know, it's just very impressive. It's unforgettable. That is the grand finale of the piece. Suddenly the wall comes down at the end. We sort of knew it was going to come down. I'm trying to wrap my brains and remember what conversations I might have had when I was 15. I think we knew that wall wasn't going to be in place at the end of the show. Number one rule is you don't want it to look cheesy, right? I mean, a lot of effort and money, time and hopes went on the idea of knocking down the wall. It was a very large object to come down and come down in a way that really made it feel real and not like some really bad high school play. And it did, they achieved that. It's interesting now though, because of course the wall was pushed down by roadies and it was a real sort of all hands to the deck behind the scenes production, but you never got any sense of that sitting out in the audience. You were so transfixed by what was going on. Mm -hmm. 
we would strobe the lights so that it made the motion of the bricks falling made it feel like it was in slow motion, which communicated a little bit of danger because you weren't quite sure what was going on. And some of the bricks tumbled into the front rows, but they were made of cardboard and styrofoam. It's interesting, since then, interviewing people that have been involved with that production, you realise that while all this was going on out front, behind the scenes, there were these sort of worker ants, roadies and technicians, and it was all pulleys and people cranking sort of starting handles and pushing bricks over. It's not like it's done now. But none of that came across. You were totally immersed in the occasion. comes down and then the band sort of emerge like sort of minstrels picking their way through the rubble on the stage to sing the final part of the album which is called Outside the Wall. That definitely stayed with me. And then of course when the wall comes down we had this uh, screen where the wall would crumble and then you know we'd come out the end we'd do that little acoustic bit with you know the clarinet and the accordion and stuff. It was generally had an impact I think. I look back on it very fondly. People are always quite surprised when they find out I went to it because I think it's one of these gigs that's become a bit mythical. And also the fact is there's no proper film footage of it. That makes a huge difference. No one can go and look at it. There's very little footage of the wall. So it sort of exists in my memory more than it does in real life. So these sort of gigs just sort of exist in the memories of the people that were there. Some other bands had tried rock operas. The Who took it to another level. And I think Roger really took it to a completely different level where it became just a masterpiece. You know, we can't forget the other members, you know, Rick and Nick and David. I think that um, the four of them really did just rewrite history with The Wall, both on the album and live. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. And because they were so dramatic and the seriousness of the music, it seemed to just resonate with people. You saw when their shows and you would come back moved. It's not just entertaining, but you know, seriously moving. Maybe the new generation thinks everything's gonna be a smash hit as long as they get it on social media. But when the people I worked with, I don't think anybody consciously thought about that. I think they really were thinking about how they could really achieve what they were feeling inside of themselves and what their creation be like a painter. It's no different than a painter. When you're doing it, you're doing it for yourself. You're not doing it to have everyone go, oh, wow, that's really great. I think it's a much more solitary feeling at that time. I think we're still talking about it because the music has connected with so many people. I mean, it is such a phenomenally huge selling album, but I think people connect with it on that level. It's big, <laughs> you know, it's uh, very different to a lot of other kind of albums and music. You know, it's just impressive. It's just, it sounds really majestic. It's really big, it's very powerful. You know, it just makes an impression on people. It talks about human relationships, it talks about governments, it talks about war, it talks about politics and greed, and all of these things are still pertinent now. But also, it's an amazing show. So you can engage with the message as much or as little as you want to, but if you sat there and watched that performance, 
as I did at the O2 when I saw it again the second time. It's like watching a gigantic fireworks display. So it engages your brain, but it also engages the eyes and engages the imagination on every level. Thank you. to Mark Rickman, Pink Floyd's lighting designer, Jason Sawford, Australian Pink Floyd's keyboard player, and Mark Blake, Pink Floyd writer and the wall tour attendee at age 15. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast and make sure to share I Was There with friends. I'm Sophie Kay and this was an Absolute Radio production. Next time on I Was There. As much a gig as it's now folklore, around 40 people paid 50p to see a band that would change their lives. It'll never happen again. As a gig, as a story, as a myth, it'll never happen again. It was the most appalling, shocking episode I'd ever seen on a stage. But the appeal of it was that you could relate to it and you felt that you could do it. Very important that you get the right people at the right time. Sometimes just hate brings people together. That night was one of those nights. It's the Sex Pistols at Manchester Lesser Free Trade Hall. Mm-hmm.